Praise job. Good job. Praise team. Great job. That was awesome. You know, it's interesting. I can hear those same songs in my car, you know, driving. And, and, and I have a Jesus moment, and me and Jesus are, you know, I'm praising him or whatever. But I tell you something, when I get together with the family of God and my church family, and I sing these same songs, I'm just like overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but this, this morning was just awesome. I could probably quit right now, but you're not getting off that easy. So anyway, um, Ashley Sharp's going to be our scripture reader this morning. So Ashley, if you'll come on up here. Wow, you haven't even read yet, and you get an applause. How about that? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> to gonna give you this mic right here. There you go. And we are, we are in Mark chapter 6 this morning. All right. Ashley, before you read, just tell us about yourself, what, what God's doing in your life. A lot of, there's some people don't know you yet, and so we're, we want to use They're this opportunity. why on earth are they applauding this strange woman? Um, <laughs> Amen, um, it's really. It's been a while, right? <laughs> it's been a while since I've been up with band equipment during service. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ashley Sharp. Um, Chris and I have been going to Revolution for six years. Wow. Six years. Um, I was first known as the Papoose Lady because I had the baby and I would carry Luke, little Luke, around and little Papoose, and everyone was like, "Oh, it's the Papoose Lady." Um, I, and I, I was in the band for about three years, and I'm currently on hiatus because I have a little small child <laughs> who won't let me go for band practice. She told me no. Um, so, just a little bit about me. If if there was a phrase that describe my life is, there once was a girl who knew better. The end. That was basically it. I grew up in church, and I knew better. Um, I didn't really get it uh, until later on. I knew who Jesus was, and in my core, I grew up in the things that I, I knew to be true, but they weren't tested. They were never tested because I was a very sheltered child. Um, when I moved to Houston in 2007, it was tested. <laughs> it became very tested. Um, I'm from Hot Springs, Arkansas, so it was very much tested, and I started to grow slowly in sometimes the hard way in learning about who Jesus actually is. And it sounds strange to say that because I heard it my whole life and who Jesus is, but who he is to me, the relationship that I personally have with Jesus. And once I started to develop that relationship and get into the word and understand what that meant about me, because I grew up reading King James Version of the Bible, and these and nows are really pretty, but it didn't really sink into my brain. Um, and once I started developing that, I really started to get an anchoring in a relationship with Jesus Christ personally yeah, to true. me, not Jesus in pictures, Jesus on TV, Jesus in the pulpit, Jesus in my heart, and that's good. how he was impressing himself upon my life. Again, many times the hard way. Mm -hmm. And then I'm really grateful we found Revolution Church. Um, we just absolutely love it here. It came in, and they're real people here. I was like, oh my gosh, real people, live people who have problems and who don't just come to church and put on a pretty face and, mm -hmm. and who have actual real problems and they're not afraid to talk about them and support you through whatever you're going through and just being willing to being open and honest. That was new for me growing up. Amen. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. How All about right. it? So Mark 6, um, chapter 6, verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. 
And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he had heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. 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 Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate it. So uh, let, let's go to the Lord in prayer because we're going to need the Holy Spirit's help and guidance to understand what we've just read. So again, Father, we ask that you fill our hearts with wisdom from above so that we can understand what you want to say to your church this morning. Lord, this is a, a difficult passage, and so we need your assistance and we need to be able to apply this to our life on Monday morning so that we can be light to a dark world. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You know, uh, I did a destination wedding up in Montana a few years ago. One of the places I'd always wanted to go, and it was so funny because I was telling Tammy, we were talking places you would want to go, and I said, Montana's like on my list. And I am not kidding you, two days later I get a call from Chris Ochtenberg, some of y'all remember, remember him, and, and he had grown up in my youth ministry and then moved off to Wisconsin, and he said, hey, Brother Gary, you remember me, Chris? I'm like, of course, yeah, and he says, he said, hey, I'm getting married, 
and I, I want you to do my wedding, and it's a destination wedding in Montana. I'm like, I'm like, Montana, Montana. See, we, we just talked about Montana. And I said, sure, I'd be loved to do that. He said, yeah, I'm going to fly up there. I'll put you in a place to stay. It'll be great. So I got up to Montana, and I didn't realize how far north of Montana that I was going to be. Calgary was 45 minutes away, right across the border. And you know where my passport was? On my nightstand back in, in Pearland, Texas. And I'm like, oh, man. And I, I left home without my passport, you know. So therefore, I was very limited in what I could do. And there's sometimes that you, you are without things. And in fact, the key word of Mark chapter 6 and even 7 is the word without. The word without. You don't want to leave home without your passport. And there's several things in this passage you don't want to be without. Uh, number one is Jesus talks about a prophet without honor. And he's talking about himself. And then he talks about a journey without supplies. He sends out the disciples two by two, pretty much empty-handed. And then he talks about a preacher, John the Baptist, without fear. He talks about a ruler, Herod, without self-control. And next week we'll talk about, Jesus talks about the people gathered together to hear his teaching about sheep without a shepherd. And so let's talk about the first one here, the, a prophet without honor. He says he went away from there. Where was there? where he just had done all these miracles on the other side of, of the sea, on the Gentile side, and he came back to his hometown. Now, let's do a little history here, okay? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, okay? <laughs> Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then when, when Herod, his, this other Herod the Great, the other guy, Herod's dad, there's a bunch of Herods here, we'll talk about it. When Herod the Great said he wanted to kill all the male babies, where did his family go? They went to Egypt. So his toddler years are in Egypt. And what's really cool is in one of the episodes of The Chosen, Jesus, this woman starts speaking Egyptian. He or she finds out she's, from, she's Egypt. He starts, starts speaking Egyptian to her. Which Do they speak Egyptian? What do they speak? I guess so. I don't know. We'll find out. We'll just go with the Egyptian. Okay? And she's surprised. He knows. Well, like, you know, I grew up there for a little bit, a little bit of his life, you know? And uh, anyway, when they came back, his hometown was, somebody said it earlier, Nazareth. Okay, so that's where he's gone back to. Now, this is a podunk town if there ever was one. I mean, Nate and Tori think they're from a podunk town. This was a more of a podunk town. This was approximately 400 people, okay? So in a town where pretty much everybody knew everybody. And when it says Jesus was the carpenter, that's what it was. He was the, car he was the town's carpenter. There wasn't like there were several carpenters. They called him not a carpenter. They said he was the carpenter. And so everybody knows Jesus. And his disciples followed him there. And he began on the Sabbath to teach in the synagogue, which I'm thinking for people in that town was probably new. He was not the Jesus that they knew when he went away. And now he's come back because his ministry headquarters is Capernaum, which is about a day's walk away. But, you know, Two towns separated, you know, with no internet, no cell phone, no cars. You know, that could be forever away. And so he's teaching in the synagogue, and all these people are, like, astonished. Like, wow, where did he get this? Now, does that, I don't know about you, but that gives me a flashback to when he was 12, and he got left behind in the temple, and all the Pharisees and the teachers and the, and the, the priests were all just astonished that this 12-year-old was asking such amazing questions. And here he is again. 18 years later, astonishing the crowd with his knowledge. And they said, where did this man get these things? What was the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done? So there's three questions here. And let me tell you something. 
it's good to ask questions about Jesus, okay? So to, to ask questions about, you know, I'm not really sure what I know about Jesus. Is Jesus really who he says he is? Can he really change my life? Is he the only way? It's okay to ask questions. But be sure you're asking honest questions. Like, are you really prepared for the answer? Some people question Jesus because they really, they're afraid that if, if he really is who he says he is, I better stop what I'm doing on the side over here. If Jesus really is who he says he is, then I better give him my life, which means I can't run my own life. And that's kind of what they're afraid of. Some people question Jesus because they want to chase him off. Some people question Jesus because they want to know, are they embracing the right Savior? And so they're asking these questions. And so then they proceed with some more questions. This last one's really like one question. And it's basically, don't we know his family? I mean, those bunch of knuckleheads? And this guy, he's the Messiah? Come on, really? Um, one of my favorite preachers, uh, um, 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 God, now I'm going to blank out here. His name is Marita. Tony Maria, thank you, uh, Imago Day. He talks about it this way. He says, you know, this is like being here in Pearland and saying, hey, you know, Larry down on aisle three at Home Depot, he's the Messiah. Yeah, Larry, he's a, he's a handy carpenter. He can tell you how to buy the right wood. Yeah, he's the Messiah. And people are like, what? Are you kidding me? No, not Larry. Um, so they ask four skeptical questions. And I'm calling them skeptical questions because they really don't want to know the answer. They're just trying to dismiss him, like, why should we listen to him? And here's what they go through, okay? Number one, where did he get these things? Okay, they're astonished. Like, wait, this carpenter is talking great theology here and amazing us more than any of these other learned people with PhDs have said. Where did, where did he get this? I mean, this is before the internet, so he's not plagiarizing his sermons here. He's, he's getting all this because he knows this stuff. And number two, what is the wisdom given to him? Number three, how... So you see the where, what, and the how, all this mighty things done by his hands. And then question number four, his family, okay? And it, and it says here, is this not the carpenter? Like I said, he's the town carpenter, and then he moved away, and now we can't get anything made out of wood. Or maybe, I don't know what it is. But, uh, and he, the, it's word here, carpenter, we think pretty narrow, like wood only. But the, the Greek word here means craftsman. He could have been a mason. He could have, I don't mean the masons, but I mean like he could have been laying stone. He could be a builder of all kinds of stuff, not just wood. Uh, but that's a pretty simple trade. But isn't it a beautiful picture that he's making things out of wood? He probably made a manger and he probably maybe even made a cross. And it's a foretelling of what, how he would die. And he's, and it's, it's interesting. They say something that's pretty insulting. The son of Mary in Jewish culture, and in pretty much any culture around the world that day, you were the son of, and you named your dad. But they're kind of like dismissing it, you know, because she they, the rumor around Nazareth was, and all 400 people knew, Jesus was illegitimately born. You know, Joseph and Mary got together before they were married, and that was a big no-no. And then they tried to cover up the whole thing by saying, no, no, really, it's, it's a virgin birth. <laughs> yeah, right. Never heard of that before. You, I've heard of all kinds of crazy stories but this, this one takes the cake. And so Jesus was known as the son of Mary here disrespectfully. And he's the brother of James, who wrote, we believe, wrote the book of James. And he's, James is obviously his half-brother because Jesus' Jesus's father was who? God. James' brother was who? Joseph, right. And then Joseph, which we don't know much about. And then Judas is the one who wrote the book of Jude. But because of the the bad reputation of Judas Iscariot, he didn't want to be known as Judas 
he changed his name to Jude, which was a common name. It's like Robert, Bob, or whatever. It's just to drop the S and just say Jude. And then Simon, which we don't know much about. And, then, and I don't know, I, I tried to study up on this whole separate question. Are not his sisters here with us? I'm thinking, is that something derogatory? Like his sisters have a bad reputation or whatever. I don't really know. I don't want to read too much into it. I really couldn't find anything from any experts that said it meant one thing or another, but I just kind of threw it out there. But Jesus had a big family. And what's interesting is at this point, none of them believe in him. None of them. In fact, they are opposed to him. As we learned a couple weeks ago, there was one point in his ministry where they came up and knocked the door and said, hey, can we talk to Jesus? We really need to talk to Jesus. We wanted, they wanted to seize him and take him away. And if there had been mental institutions back there, they were probably going to admit him. They really thought he was losing it. So let's deal with each of these questions because they're good questions. But we're going to look at it from a, not a skeptical standpoint, but we're looking for honest answers. First question, where did this man Jesus get these things, the things referred to as teaching, okay? It says, and in, in, Jesus answers that question in the Gospel of John. Uh, John 7, 15 says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? This guy is not going off to college. They're used to all the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, people with degrees, teaching the Bible. And let me just tell you something. That's been the problem without history, is that we think that Bible teachers are way up here, and us average people, we can't understand the Bible. That is not true. Okay? The Reformation happened because the Bible was published and, and, and people were getting the Bible in their own hands. Did you know people were put to death because of having the Scripture in their own language? It, see, in England, the Bible was always in Latin and the priests read it. And when Tyndale and others published the Bible in English, they said, hey, read it for yourself. Those people were put to death because as long as the Bible is something only that scholarly people in their ivory towers can understand. Then they have all the power, and they can tell you what to do. But when you put the hands in the, in the, in the, of the, put the Bible in the hands of everyday people, then guess what? All of a sudden, the clergy has, is accountable to where people are going, hey, you know, Pastor, I read this here, and you taught this, and I don't think that adds up. And it was always like, no, who, who are you to question? We're men of God, you know? And so I've, I've said it a hundred times, and I'll continue to say it. If you ever go to a church where a pastor pushes back on you questioning his teaching, go to another church. <laughs> you need to get, or you need to replace your pastor or something. I am not perfect, okay? The Word of God is perfect, but I'm going to do my best to teach the perfect Word of God. But that doesn't mean that Gary Milborn will not fail. And that doesn't mean that I am not above reproach, where you can come to me and say, hey, pastor, you, you taught this right here, but what does this verse over here mean? And that, that doesn't seem like that jives. That's great. There'll be times, and that, have I changed my views on things? Absolutely. You know, there's times I'm like, you know what? I think that's right. Let's go with that. Um, let you preach next week. No, um, but Jesus answers the question, verse 16. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Who sent Jesus? God the Father. He's saying, hey, I'm just teaching what the God of the Old Testament has taught you. You just don't know it very well. You're not paying close attention. I'm doing exactly what he is telling me to do. And then this is so important here. Verse 17 in the same chapter of John says, if anyone's will is to do God's will. Now just stop right there. Is your will to do God's will? Do you wake up every morning and say, God, what do you want me to do? Or do you got your plans? I mean, you got your goals and you got your things you go throughout your day without even consulting God. You need to stop there. But it's, it's if, not everybody is their plan. And it says, if that's your plan, I want to know what God wants me to know. I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to be what God wants me to be. 
then you will know whether the teaching is from God or whether he's speaking on his own. You see, when people heard Jesus preach, some people were like, yeah, he's the Messiah, he's it. Other people were like, no, 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 no. You know what the difference was? It wasn't Jesus didn't preach good enough. It wasn't that the Bible wasn't true. It was all, I want to do my own thing. I'm not letting any God tell me what to do. So therefore, that teaching must be false. And I guarantee you, 90% of your friends who say, oh, the Bible's not true, Christianity's narrow-minded, bigoted, homophobic, and all this stuff, and all these things they say negative about that. I guarantee you, in 90% of the cases, if not 99% of the cases, it's they've got something in their life that they don't want changed, that they've got a certain lifestyle or a certain rebellious thing that they want to hold on to, and if they know that Jesus is true and the Bible is right, they've got to give this up, and they don't want to do it. And I'm not knocking them because you and I were there before we got saved too. We're just only by the grace of God has our heart been enlightened, okay, to where we are beggars who have found bread, trying to share that bread with other beggars. And that's how we always need to see ourselves. So when I say this, I'm not trying to knock them and say, what bad evil people are. You made the right choice and they didn't. No, no. By the grace of God, you came to that point where he broke you down to make that right choice. Pray that God takes the blinders off their eyes so they can see the same thing. But when you disagree with the Bible, almost always, it's because you've got a heart problem, not because the Bible's not true. I have people will tell me, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. I'll say, here, show me one. And they'll be like, oh. Are you going to make a decision that it impacts your whole eternity because you heard some college professor tell you the Bible's full of contradictions and you're just going to go with it? And you haven't investigated yourself? Seriously, you're going to do that? Um, Sorry, I'll get a little passionate there. Uh, So if someone reads the teaching of Jesus and decides it's not of God, it's not because they don't want to do God's will, but rather their own will. That's the bottom line right there. Second question, what is this wisdom given to him? They, they could not deny that Jesus was like making whole lots of sense. That this was like teaching scripture on another level. Like, wow. They weren't refuting it. They weren't saying you're teaching the Bible wrong. They're just thinking he got it from somewhere else or whatever. This, this couldn't be him because he, after all, he's just a carpenter. Um, and Luke answers this question. It's nice to have all the different gospels. It's, there's no contradiction there. Just four different points of view writing to different audiences. It says, therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some whom they will kill and persecute. You know, Jesus is saying, you know what? What I'm teaching you is nothing new. Zechariah said it. Isaiah said it. Hosea said it. Malachi said it. I'm just repeating to them. And what did you do to them? You killed them. And what are you going to do to me? You're going to kill me. You're not rejecting the way we teach Torah. You're rejecting God. It's because you don't really want to, you want to be religious, but you don't want to be a Christian. You want to go to church because it appeases your conscience, making you check it off your list. I'm a good person. I'm better than all those other people who didn't go to church. Now I'm going to go do what I want to do. Christianity is not there to make you feel better about yourself. You're, you're a follower of Christ to glorify God. And, but there's a, we live in a very religious country. And right now, here on Sunday morning, there's people in all kinds of churches, and they're only there to feel religious, okay? We need to not just try to feel religious. We're here to worship God because he's worthy of our praise. It says, what is this wisdom given him? He, he continues to say, from the blood of Abel. Jesus goes A to Z right here, literally. He said, from the blood of Abel, you know, Abel worshiped the Lord properly, and what happened? His brother killed him, right? And then all the way to Zechariah, A to Z, 
who perished between the altar because they persecuted him as well. He said, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. He said, all these prophets, literally A to Z, the whole 39 books of the Old Testament, they all will stand up in court one day and say, you're guilty because you rejected the truth. James 3.17 says, the wisdom, but the wisdom from above. Okay, so we pray for God to give us wisdom, right? But God not only just gives us wisdom, he sent wisdom incarnate, Jesus Christ, from above, and says it's first pure, peaceable, gentle. So Jesus has answered the question, where did I get this wisdom? It's from above. This is, this is God's wisdom. And I'm not, not only am I giving you information, I am here as incarnate wisdom for you. So how, the next question, how are such mighty works done by his hands? See, they're not refuting that these were mighty works. I mean, they couldn't deny it. Look, at he, he raised a dead girl, okay? He, he healed a blind man. He, he healed lepers. He, he fed 5,000. He did all these things. So they're not refuting these things actually happened. They're wondering, but how is it possible by, by him, the carpenter, the, the, the illegitimate son of Mary and Joseph? Really? This is the guy pulling all this off? And so um, in John 14, 10, it says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? See, there's, there's a trinity right there. Okay, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak to my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. So you say, how do I do these mighty works? I've got the Father living in me. Now watch this. This is some heavy theology, and I am guarantee I'm not going to say it properly, but I'll do my best. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was the Word, right? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, when Jesus became flesh, he became man. He said, you know what? I could do everything because I'm God, but guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to do everything as a spirit-filled man. I'm going to be a man who has to depend on the Holy Spirit just like I want you to do. And I'm going to show you it can be done. And so Jesus, when he's doing the miracles, he's not doing them as God the Son. He's doing them as Jesus the man, depending upon the power of God. And so that, that gets kind of sketchy sometimes for some people. But they want to say, well, that's what means Jesus isn't God. But no, Jesus is setting the example of how to do it, how to live the life, how to be tempted, but yet not given to sin and all those other human things that Jesus did. So question number four, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of all these siblings that, that he named? So they're trying to knock Jesus now because of his family. Anybody ever have that happen to you? That, that, where they hold your family against you and then treat you differently because your family is one way or another. This is what they're doing to Jesus. And so in John 7, he says, so his brother said to him, and this is not said nicely, Jesus, just get out of here. Why don't you leave here? Leave, please. Would you just go away? Go to J Judea. And, and so your disciples can see these works you're doing. You know, and they're criticizing Jesus. And, and watch what they say here. They say, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Jesus, you're saying you're doing all these miracles, but then you tell people, don't tell anybody. I think we're, you're doing some hocus pocus, Jesus. Why don't you just, if you want to be known openly, go do it openly, but go somewhere else and do it. It's really weird how they're treating him here. But that's not Jesus' motivation. Is Jesus trying to be known openly? No. He, he tells people, hey, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell, because he didn't want the miracles to spread faster than the gospel. He wanted to be known for his teaching. The miracles were just a way to substantiate his teaching. Because people would always question. Like Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. He's basically preaching a message. Repent. Let my people go. Stop treating people as slaves. Let them go. And Pharaoh's like, who are you? I should listen to you. And what does Moses do? Puts down his rod and does a whole series of miracles to substantiate the message. 
But you know what happens And sometimes is we look at miracles as more important than the message. No, the message is always more important than the miracles. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, no, no, I'm not trying to be, let my miracles be known openly. I want the gospel to be known openly. And he, they said, well, if you do these things, see the if there, the skepticism, show yourself to the world. Now, just pause for a second and put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Have you ever been disrespectful to Mary and Joseph? Have you ever stolen from your brothers or sisters? Have you done nothing but just be kind to them? And now you're here to do the will of your heavenly Father and preach the gospel and die for them. And you know what they're doing? Why don't you go do that stuff somewhere else? If you're really actually even doing it. And it says why, verse 5, for, for, for not even his brothers, and the word brothers there is siblings, brothers and sisters, believed in him. Can you imagine how disappointing that must be? I, I only felt like a fraction of that when I was a kid. I, um, I got saved when I was nine, and nobody in my, I'm the youngest of six kids. Nobody in my family believes in Christ or goes to church at all. And I got some grief about being a Jesus freak and, and wanting to go to church and read my Bible. And just they thought I was weird and overboard. But can you imagine if I felt it this much, how much Jesus felt it? I mean, here he is. He is the Messiah. And see, I failed. I, I, they could say I was a hypocrite on some things, and sure I was. They can't say that about Jesus. He's done nothing but love his family and be respectful to them. And this is what he gets, which shows you how deeply blinding sin can be. You're living with Jesus. Now, but that tells us something else there. Jesus wasn't just saying, breakfast. <laughs> you know, hey, jo Joseph, would you go, or Jesus, would you go chop some wood? <laughs> there, the wood's done. No, he did it all in the human perspective. So they weren't thinking, oh, of course he's Jesus. Look, he's doing all these miracles around the house. No, this was a new thing to them, but they didn't want to believe it because they could not believe that their brother was that. And you know, could you, you can even bring up sibling rivalry, right? Any of you have that with your kids? Some of your kids just don't like each other just because they're in the house. <laughs> you know, that sibling rivalry, they're fighting for mom and dad's attention. Maybe that was some of what's going on here. And it says here that his brothers and sisters took offense of him. They're like, wow. Not, not just brothers and sisters, but the village basically said, hey, we know his family. Man, we don't want to hear your stuff, Jesus. And this is, where is this happening? Jesus' hometown. Think of your hometown. And you go back to your hometown or like, hey, why don't you just go back to Texas? Why don't you just go back to where you came from and just leave us alone? Go do your miracles somewhere else. Jesus is going to offend, okay? Romans chapter 9 says, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Who is that referring to? Jesus, right? Jesus is a stone over which people trip. He is a rock on which people fall and are crushed to powder. And, and we need to be careful that we as Christians are not offensive. We don't want to be offensive by the way we, we talk and we're like know-it-alls. The common cr criticism against Christians is, you just think you're better than me. We don't want to act arrogant, pious, and all those things, and being a jerk for Jesus. No, we don't want to do that. But yet at the same time, understand this. When you start talking about Jesus, even if you do it in the purest, most sincere way, people will be offended. And let me tell you, there's churches today that are trying really hard to make the gospel not offensive. 
Let's just make everybody feel good. Let's have a TED talk. Let's talk some psychology. Let's slip in a Bible verse, maybe here or there, and let's just not offend anybody. Let's make everybody feel home. Let's even sing some secular songs in church to make everybody feel comfortable because we don't want to offend everybody. No. We're going to offend. It's going to offend. Now, we don't want to be offensive in the way we dress or the way we just make people feel guilty and all those other artificial things. But when it comes down to preaching Jesus, there will be no compromise. And if people are offended because they're told that they're sinners, like we are, and they're told that they need a Savior, if that, if that offends, then so be it. Jesus himself offended people, and he did nothing wrong. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. This was a common saying going around in, in, in Jerusalem. So Jesus is not making this up. He's saying basically anywhere a prophet goes, and Jesus, by implication here, is calling himself a prophet, he, he's the greater prophet. He's the one greater than Moses, greater than Isaiah, greater than Ezekiel. He's the greatest prophet. But he's saying he, all those prophets, everywhere they went, people are like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Keep preaching. But when they went home, people are like, oh, we know you. you know. And, and everywhere a preacher goes, it seems like everywhere but his hometown, they give him honor. And it says, but he even breaks it down farther. His hometown, his relatives, and even his household. Basically, he's saying it gets worse. Everybody in town doesn't want to believe you. The people who know you best don't want to believe you. And even people living under the same roof don't want to believe you. And now, I could see why my family would say that. Okay, they know me. They know my flaws. They know my past. They know my failures. But what did they hold against Jesus? Okay, keep in mind, Jesus was Lord at his birth, right? Christ the Savior is born. So it isn't like some new age people teach that Jesus was just a human, but then at his baptism, he received the spirit of Christ. No, that's garbage. Jesus was born. He never sinned from the time he did he. Now, this is, there's a difference between sin and mistakes. Okay, go with me here, okay? Luke chapter 12 says that the child grew in wisdom and in stature. Did Jesus have to learn his alphabet? Yay, yes. Did he have to learn two plus two? So there's, I believe, and this is not blasphemy, I believe Jesus probably got a math problem wrong. I believe there was times that Jesus was hammering it and hit his thumb. But he didn't curse like you and I might, okay? Jesus... Jesus made mistakes, but none of them were sin. He was a child. He was learning. And learning means making mistakes, right? So anyway, we can argue over that if you want to, but maybe they just saw his mistakes and held that against him, but that doesn't mean he sinned. Matthew 10 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus says, you know what? There's going to be people divided over this. And it's sad to see our country so divided. So divided. And really, if you, if you look at it closely, it really all comes down to Jesus is what we're dividing over. But that's a, another sermon for another time. He says, to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his, his own household. That's the way I felt when I was nine. I'm like, I'm saved. I'm loving Jesus. And everybody's giving me a hard time for it. My brothers and sisters and my dad especially was giving me a really hard time about it. And Jesus is like, hey, I told you it'd be that way. When people really stand up for the Lord, there will people be against them. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown. You see the breakdown there. So it's not without honor. Um, so let's go on to the next one here. A prophet without honor, it says in verse 5, it says that he could do no mighty work there. Now, people look at that and they'll say, see, Jesus had limitations. And there's a, a prosperity gospel that um, it's, the, it's called the Word of Faith Movement. And it's just heresy. It's just wrong. They'll say that you speak the words of faith and give Jesus permission to do what he does. 
And that's baloney. Jesus can do what he wants, where he wants, whenever he wants. Okay? So when it says he could do no miracle there, it'd be like, hey, let's go to McDonald's. You say, oh, no, I can't eat there. Right? Anybody say amen? I can't eat there? Okay. Or, there's, or maybe I should pick Taco Bell. And then I get an amen for a Taco Bell? Okay. Um, you'd be like, no, no, I can't eat there. Okay? And uh, now, are you saying that it's physically impossible to put a burrito supreme in your mouth? So, yes, yes. Okay. But are you saying that it is so disgusting that I won't eat there? That's what you're saying because you just compare this to other scriptures. Watch this. In Matthew 13, the same passage, the same story, it says, and he did not do mighty works there. So don't say this could not, as in Jesus is now all of a sudden handcuffed, and because there's people who preach that. Like, if you don't have faith, Jesus is handcuffed. Jesus can't do anything. In fact, um, Benny Hinn and some others, they teach that God, Jesus is outside of this world, and he cannot enter in unless you give him permission to by speaking the words of faith. That is blasphemy. That is blasphemy. Jesus can do what he wants, where he wants, and he's proven that. How many miracles did Jesus do where he didn't even ask the person permission? He asked the guy, blonde guy, do you want to see? And he said, yes. And then later they asked the guy, who, who healed you? And he says, I don't even know. He didn't even know Jesus. He wasn't saved, and Jesus healed him. So Jesus can do what he wants, where he wants. Um, and then it says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus was like, oh, I can't believe how hard-hearted you guys are. You've seen me do all these miracles, and you're going to tell me I just need to get out of town. I, I'm stunned. I'm flabbergasted. Jesus, you know, whatever words Jesus was trying to say at the time. So what did he do? He said, you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll just go in some other villages, and I'll teach the Bible there because they, they seem to have an open heart. You guys seem to be really closed-minded about this. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. And this is Luke's version of the story. This is talk. I'm sorry. I have a different story. The centurion. Remember the centurion? who said, sent word to Jesus and said, hey, would you come and heal my servant? And Jesus said, yeah, let's go. And the guy goes, no, no, I understand authority. I tell people to go, they go. I tell people to do this, they do it. You have authority, Jesus. Just say the word and it'll be done. And Jesus like, wow, this is amazing. And Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith, turning to the crowd and he followed and said, I tell you, look at, look at this guy here. Not even in Israel. This guy's a Roman. And in your whole country who's had the Bible, I don't even find that much faith. This guy doesn't even have a Bible and he understands who I am. And you guys have had all the prophets and you have no clue. And then Jesus is just, just marveled at this. Um, finish the phrase with me. Familiarity breeds contempt. Like when you despise something. How many of you have grown up in church? We've been a Christian for more than 10 years. Okay. Be careful. You can become so familiar with the Bible, with Bible teaching, Bible preaching, with songs, with Christians, to where you're like, you know, it's just like trying to eat the same thing for breakfast every single day. You're like, Whoa. I, 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 I get that way with salads sometimes. Like, like, I want to eat healthy. I'm salad, 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 salad. I'm like, okay, I could care less if I ever see another spinach leaf again, you know, because you get it so often. And if we are not careful, that can happen to us. So familiarity breeds, breeds contempt if you let it, if you let it. If you pull up in the parking lot here on Sunday and before you, as you take the keys out of the ignition, Lord, open my eyes. Let me behold wonderful things out of your word. Let me act like this is the first Sunday I've ever gone to church in my life and let it be like it's the last Sunday I may ever go to church in my life and have that perspective where everything can stay fresh because if you're not careful, 
our human nature. The, the problem isn't with the food that we become familiar with. The problem isn't the Bible we become familiar with. The problem is us. Well, we, by our sin nature, we get bored and we just want new stuff, new stuff, new stuff. So let's go on to a journey without supplies, a journey without supplies. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. That's a good policy, by the way. Why do you think he sends them out two by two? Man, there's lots of good reasons. One is over and over again in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy, it says, let everything be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So therefore, if there's any false accusation, someone can say, hey, no, I was there with him. He didn't say that, or he didn't do that, or whatever it may be. It's an accountability thing. But also, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says two are better than one, because why? They have good reward for their labor. So Jesus is just practicing a good principle here. And it says, he gave them authority. You have no authority over the devil or demons unless Jesus gives it to you. Okay? You need to be careful about what you're saying and speaking to the spirit world unless you have the authority of Jesus. And it was over unclean spirits, which is just another word for demons. Okay? There's, nothing, there's no distinction. Some people try to make a distinction between unclean spirits and demons. That Jesus says they're the same thing. And he tells them, hey, don't take any of this stuff with you. You're going to go on a trip. What are you doing? Man, Tammy's packing everything. I think we're taking a toaster. I'm like, there's no electricity out in the woods. What are we doing? We're, we're taking everything. Tammy wants to take everything. I'm, I want to take like next to nothing. And of course, then I get out there and I'm like, I don't have anything, but I'm glad Tammy brought this, you know? So don't tell her I said that. She'll get cocky on me. Anyway, um, but he says, seriously, don't, don't take anything, okay? Don't take a staff. Don't take any bread. Don't take any money in your belt. Now, let me tell you that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. There are actually some, I've heard that there are some missions agencies, Christian mission agencies that tell their missionaries, go out just like this. Don't take anything with you. Fly over there to this new country and land there with nothing. And, and totally depend on God, which is good. But Jesus will tell them later what to take. In fact, let me, let's talk about that here. So that's not saying that that's what you have to do. This was a little science experiment that Jesus had for these disciples at this time to go do this, to learn to trust him. And then they would teach him what, so Luke 22 says, and he said to them, but now, now he's sending them out again and watch what he says here. He said, if you have a money bag, take it. And if you have, and also if you have a knapsack, take that too. You know, get the sleeping bag. And, and, and if you don't have a sword, listen, this is Jesus. This is Jesus, NRA Jesus saying, if you don't have a sword, go buy one. People are like, oh, Jesus is peaceful. Jesus would never own a gun. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you don't have a sword, please go buy one. Okay? In fact, when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he knows the Roman soldiers are coming, he says, how many swords do you have? And they say, we have two. He said, that's good enough. He didn't say, oh, get rid of the swords, put down your weapons, just be pacifists. That, that's, that's just baloney. He's telling them to go out and buy. So one time he's telling them, go on this trip, don't take anything. The next time he's saying, hey, pack your bags and bring a weapon. Okay, so don't try to isolate one verse of scripture and say, this is the way we should do it. It's not biblical at all. Um, so, and then he says, but if they won't hear you, you preach the gospel and they won't hear you, shake the dust that's off your feet. Now, uh, yeah, it was biblical, right? And so what that meant was, is we're not responsible. And they're shaking, the, as they get to the city limits, they're shaking the dust off their feet. And it was symbolic of them, hey, we told you the truth, you rejected it, we're not responsible. When you stand before God, you can't say well, it wasn't because we didn't hear and God and the, the Father looks at us and says, hey, disciples, why didn't you tell them? Hey, we did. In fact, we're shaking the dust off our feet saying we're not responsible. Let me ask you a question. The family members you have, the coworkers that you know, the people who live on your street, can you literally shake up the dust and say, hey, I told you? 
I don't think I could say that. This is not a, oh, on you. It's like we did our job. And guess what? We have the same responsibility. When he said in Matthew 28, 19, go into all the world and preach the gospel, he was not just talking to the 12 now. He was talking to the church. He was talking to all of us. We have a responsibility to tell. If they don't believe, that's between them and God. But if we don't tell, that's between us and God. So he went out and he proclaimed that people should repent. What does the word repent mean? It's literally a military word that when a soldier's marching in one direction and the commander says about face and they turn and merely march the other direction. It doesn't mean stop. It doesn't mean turn around. It means stop marching that direction and start marching in the opposite direction. John the Baptist, what was his first sermon? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes on the scene. And what is his sermon? Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus sends out the apostles two by two. What does he tell them to preach? Repent. The apostle Paul, what was his first message? To repent. Peter's first message in Jerusalem, repent over and over again. Do you see a theme? And yet very little repentance is preached nowadays. It's, it's super important that we change our ways. And remember this, repentance is not just something a lost person does to be saved. It's something that believers need to do all the time. Think of your worst habit. Think of your selfishness. Think of everything. You need to repent. Martin Luther said this. He said, all of, Christian, all, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. We should be repenting all day, every day. Every time we sin, we need to repent. Are we getting saved again? No. We're just restoring the fellowship. And the whole process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, is repenting of all the sinful things that are in our heart. And let me just tell you this. Here's a good gauge of where you're at with Jesus. When you're more bothered by the sin outside of you in the world than you are bothered by the sin inside of you, there's something wrong. I get bothered by what I see on the news. I don't watch it that much, that's why. But I, I get bothered when I see other people being selfish. But you know what? The, the thing that bothers me every day is Gary and Gary's selfishness. And it, it needs to bother me more than anybody else's problem. If I, and I, I, I can't repent as long as my eyes are on everybody else trying to pull out splinters out of everybody else's eyes. I got to deal with the beam and it's in my own eye. And we have to repent on a regular basis. And y'all are sending in questions. Good, that's good. Um, I need to get to it, right? Anyway, we're good, okay. And it says, and they cast out many demons. Now remember this. These disciples have been watching Jesus and they're like, oh, did you see that? Wow. And they're just amazing over and over again. He said, okay, guys, you ready? Go do it. I'm like, but Jesus, we haven't been to seminary. We've only known you for a couple of years here, maybe a year at this point. We don't know how early in this ministry it is. And he's like, no, go, go do it, go do it. Which means Jesus wants people to do ministry without having to be fully trained. That may sound like heretical to some people, but you know what? You may say, well, I don't know the Bible very well. Whatever you know, teach it to somebody. Whatever you know about Jesus, share it with somebody. Don't wait till you're the perfect Christian before you start serving, serving God. And it says, and they anointed oil with oil many who were sick. Now, people have different opinions, but this is an incredibly minor issue. This is not a major issue. People can agree to disagree. Some people think that oil has something supernatural that it does. I think it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit being the one who does the healing. But James chapter 5 says, If anyone's sick among you, let him call for who? The elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this pastor right here, I'm not trying to teach James right now, but... This is talking about a persistent sickness that doesn't go away. And sometimes, not always, everybody say sometimes. 
Sometimes a sickness that is persistent and won't go away is caused by sin. Not always. So don't hear what I'm not saying. So sometimes, if, and, and that people need to say, you know what? I've had this sickness for a while. Pastors, elders, would you pray for me? And they anoint with oil. And we've done that just only a handful of times, but we've done that in the past. And we are praying for that person that the Holy Spirit would heal them. And then the next verse says, and if they've committed any sin, it'll be forgiven them. So it's clearly James is tying together some types of sicknesses that are tied to sin. So now we're going to move on to a preacher without fear. Who's that talking about? Yeah, John the Baptist. So King Herod, okay, so there's, the, there's Herod the Great who was over that whole Judean area. But then what he did as he was getting older, he divided the area into four regions and appointed tetrarchs, which were guys over a fourth of the kingdom. And he had, he named his sons, he named like, the, the daughters were named Herodias, and uh, there was Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip, and Herod, and so, you know, it was kind of like George Foreman, all of his kids named George. So he was that way too. And uh, anyway, he, it says he heard of all this stuff going on with Jesus, and Jesus became known. He said, hey, some people are saying that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, which is really ironic because John, it says John did no miracles. John just preached hellfire and brimstone and people got saved and got baptized, but did no miracles. And all of a sudden, Herod's believing the crowd when they're saying, this, this, this must be John the Baptist who's come back from the dead. Well, what you'll see here is it's really a guilty conscience. But others said, well, he's Elijah because he's doing, he, John the Baptist is dressed like Elijah. He's weird like Elijah. He's hanging out in the wilderness like Elijah. He's preaching hellfire and brimstone. He acts just like Elijah. Of course, the prophecy was that someone would come in the spirit of Elijah. And John the Baptist, Jesus said of John the Baptist, he is Elijah if you will receive it. They, were wanting, they thought literally Elijah would come back from the dead. And Jesus says, no, he's doing the ministry of the spirit of Elijah. And they said, well, maybe, maybe just one of those prophets of old. Because the prophets we have today, they stink. But those guys from old, man, they were, they were, they were the real thing. And maybe that's what he is. He's one of those guys. But when Herod heard of it, which one did he choose to believe? I, I think it's John because he beheaded John, now this guilty conscience is coming back to bother him. So he thinks Jesus is now John the Baptist reincarnate and the spirit working in him. And of course, all that's a lot of superstitious mumbo jumbo. For it was Herod who sent and seized John. And now, if you were watching the 80s sitcom, this is where the screen gets blurry and we're going to do a back to the past, you know. And so we're telling a story here of something that happened a long time ago. Uh, what do you call that? A dreamscape? No, what is that called when they do Flashback, thank you. Okay, good. And bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. This is so sketchy. I mean, you talk about a weirdo soap opera. Herodias was Herod, Ant so the Herod we're talking about in this story is Herod Antipas. His niece was Herodias. She married his brother, Philip. So Philip, his brother, marries their niece. But then Herod Antipas seduces Herodias and says, no, be my wife. So they're fighting over their niece. And it's really gross, you know. And so, and it's, it's just a public immorality to where John the Baptist is like, hey, don't be immoral. Don't be like Herod who steals his niece from his brother. You know, this is the kind of stuff that only happens in Arkansas. No, just kidding. Um, but it, so I had to pick on you there. So anyway, and John the Baptist says to Herod, he confronts him. He's speaking out in public. John the Baptist had, had nerve. He for sure did. And he said, and by the way, watch that episode of Chosen where John the Baptist is on the way to tell Herod and Jesus is like, just make sure you know what you're doing. <laughs> you know? And they have that nice little conversation there on the log by the sea. It's awesome. But anyway, 
But he says it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now keep in mind that Herod is a Jew that's working for the Romans. So he still should be subject to the Old Testament. But John the Baptist is speaking broader than that. You just talk about the law of nature. This is just wrong. This is inbreeding. This is just wrong. You're just doing something that's totally uh, horrible, an abomination to God and to man, and you're doing it for all the world to see. What kind of example are you setting? So John the Baptist does not mind calling sin, sin. And Herodias had a grudge against him, Herodias, his wife, because she got called out with Herod that they're doing something publicly immoral. So she, rather than repenting, and say, you know what, John, you're right. She has a grudge against John the Baptist, and she wanted him put to death, but he could not. And then look at this. But Herod, he's afraid of John. If this guy is really of God, I mean, I don't want to mess with him. I don't want to give up my sin, but I don't want to also kill God's prophet either. Uh, and knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Now think about that. John the Baptist is not politically correct at all. But Herod still says, don't agree with him, but i got to respect him. You know that's exactly where you want to be? People say, you know, I don't agree with you, but I sure respect you. You obviously really do love God and believe what you believe, and you hold to it. That's really where we as, as a church need to be. And it says, and when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And that's another thing that lost people need to be when they're around us. It's like, you know, I really hate what they're saying. It's just so, it just seems so conservative and so whatever man, i got to give them kudos that they really do love God. I'm really confused on this thing. And yet he heard him gladly. Herod would bring John the Baptist in and say, hey, teach to me. Teach to me. And he'd say, yeah, you're a sinner. You, you married your, your niece. You're, you're, you're a loser. And he's like, man, this is good stuff. I'm not going to change, but I really like this message, you know. And he was preaching all kinds of stuff. And, and Herod was really confused. He was perplexed. So let's move on to this part of the story where a ruler without self-control. So an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, now I'm just going to interject here on birthday because do you, you, how many of you know people who are Jehovah's Witness, right? They don't celebrate birthdays because of this passage right here. Two times in the Bible, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, does it show someone celebrating their birthday? Anybody know who the Old Testament person is? Take a shot. Ungodly leader. Pharaoh. Okay, so Pharaoh celebrates his birthday. Herod celebrates his birthday. So Jehovah's Witnesses say, see, it's pagan to celebrate birthdays. And so they do the same thing with Christmas, with Easter and whatever, and it's, it's just baloney. But anyway, but there is a lesson here that don't turn into a selfish pig on your birthday. And you know what I'm talking about, right? You know people who, they can't just be satisfied with one hour on the day of their birthday and evening with Happy birthday, blow out the candles. It's like, oh, it's my birthday day. It's my birthday week. And like they're entitled to everything because they're just like selfish on steroids right there, you know? And just, I, I, remember when we used to have bounce down, it never failed. There'd be like a three-year-old little girl or boy and they've been told all week, it's your birthday, you're awesome, you're special, we're going to dress you up like Elsa, we're going to make you look great, you're the queen, you're the princess, whatever. And when the first thing doesn't go their way, like they don't get a slice of pizza, or their pepperoni's too hot, or whatever, well, it's my birthday, nobody's playing with me, whatever. And they're just like, you just fed them into that. You just set them up for failure. And you know what's really cool? I saw some, some parents who would say, you know, you need to go tell all your friends thank you for coming to your birthday and give them this bag. And I saw parents giving away more to the guests than the kid got. 
And that's what your birthday should be. In fact, you know, a really cool thing that's happened in the last 10 years is when people give their birthday away and say, hey, instead of presents, why don't you give money to this missionary? Instead of presents, why don't you make a donation to this fund? And that's, don't let your birthday become selfish. But this is what Herod does. It's all about him on this day. And he gave this banquet because he wants to be the big wig and hobnob with, hobnob with all the nobles and all that stuff. So there's probably hundreds of people here at this event. And Mark gives us really interesting contrast here. Herod feeds hundreds of people of the powerful and rich. But Jesus, right after this, what does he do? He feeds thousands of the poor and needy. You see this? One guy, in fact, King, Herod kept calling himself king. It's like, you're not a king, you're a tetrarch. Your dad's the king, but he wanted to be a king. He wasn't even a real king. Here's Jesus. He's the real king, but nobody gives him to acknowledge that. One feeds the powerful and the rich. The other feeds the poor and the needy. And then, um, let's see here. Herod doesn't deserve the honor, but he gets it from all these people because they're getting a free meal and they're getting to rub elbows with politicians. But John the Baptist does deserve the honor, and instead he's killed. And Jesus deserved the honor, and he would be killed later as well. Quite a contrast Mark's given us. That's why he inserts this story here. Mark's really good about that. He starts a story, he sticks one in, and then he finishes the original story. So then Herodias... Herodias' daughter, she doesn't have a name. Uh, we know from history that she's a young teenage girl. Really perverted situation here. She came in and she danced. And you don't have to use too much imagination what kind of dance it probably would be. And the word pleased her out. Uh, Herod means a whole lot more than just he was happy about her dance. And his guests. So this is really lewd situation. Times haven't changed too much, have they? Probably one of the best things about COVID is it shut down all these so-called gentlemen's clubs. But times still we've find our perversion elsewhere, evidently. He said, and Herod got so aroused by the whole situation, he says, you know, ask me whatever you want, I'll, I'll give it to you. Um, you know, you can avoid making stupid promises in moments of immoral passion, <laughs> okay? You don't have to make all these promises, oh, I love you, I'll never leave you, whatever, and all that stuff. And that's why we got all these baby daddy situations going on, because people make dumb promises in the moments of immoral passion. And you don't have to do that, because by avoiding moments of immoral passion is the best way to do that, okay? You don't want to make a dumb promise? Don't be in a dumb situation. Don't be in a dumb situation where you're thinking with your hormones or you're letting, letting the liquor talk instead of thinking straight and biblically. Verse 24 says she went out and she said to her mother, she said, hey, he told me he'd give me whatever I want. What should I ask for? And of course, her, Herodias is like, ugh, that John the Baptist. I want his head. Now watch this. She says, and read your Bible carefully, okay? She says, I want the head of John the Baptist, period. What does the girl ask for? Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter, okay? And it's not because she don't want to touch, touch the blood. She says, let's celebrate this. I want a big, fancy silver platter to celebrate this, that we killed this guy. So she takes the sin even farther than her mom takes it. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But was this godly repentance? He said, you know what? No, I, I made a stupid promise. I'm not keeping a bad promise. And by the way, if you ever make a promise that you shouldn't keep, you do have the biblical right to, to break it, okay? Like if you, well, I won't go into all that. You can use your common sense with that. But, but watch this. But because of his oaths and his guests, it wasn't just, oh, I'm a man of honor. I got to keep my oath. It's like, no, everybody's watching me. And I don't want to look like an idiot in front of all these people. And even though, man, I really like John the Baptist. I don't know what it is about him. I don't agree with him. But man, there's something about his teaching I really like. But no, let's just do this. Proverbs 29 says this, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. 
when you're concerned about what everybody thinks about your Instagram and your selfies, and you're just doing this, taking 27 selfies to get the right one with your lips puckered the right way, or you're just all concerned about, you know, do I look good in this, in this shirt? You know, what are my friends going to think about my car? I don't want to drive this droply because everybody's going to think I'm a loser. You know, who cares? Really? Don't, don't worry about what people think. Who should we be concerned about what they think? Right? Whoever trusts in the Lord, when we fear him, that's, that's when we're safe. You know, what you think about others is an idol. And you sacrifice to it. You bow down to it. You are all concerned about what everybody else thinks. Me too. Okay? Um, there's times I wonder, you know, did I offend somebody with what I preached? Or nobody said that was a good message, Pastor, or whatever, and I get all insecure. Who am I preaching for? I need to do what I do for the Lord. Praise team, we do what you do for what? For who? Lord. And when you go to work, who should you be trying to be working for? The Lord, right? It's all about him. But Herod's very concerned about what others think. So this is the church I got saved in. This is Newark Baptist Church in Newark, Delaware. Yes, I'm a recovering Yankee. This is a little country church out there in Elkton, Maryland. It, it's Newark Baptist Church. Newark's in Delaware, but the church is in Maryland. It's weird. But anyway, I, that's how close. I lived in the tri-state area. I, I, I lived in, New, in Delaware, went to church in Maryland, and worked in Pennsylvania. And that's how close all of them was. You know, you go through three states like in 25 minutes, literally. Um, anyway, Dr. Lee Boffman, he was a Dutch guy, just a really phenomenal preacher. Um, he had started this church from scratch. Man, he could preach for an hour and nobody cared. It was just like we were all on the edge of our seats because it was so good. And it was verse by verse teaching. But when he stepped down from the pulpit, he was just shy and quiet. He just wanted to go straight to his office. He was like totally opposite of me where I'm like, I just want to be with you guys and talk to you guys or whatever. He was just like, I hardly ever talked to the guy, even though I'd been there for years. I'd see him every now and then. He would say a little bit. So anyway, I got saved at nine. At age 15, I surrendered to preach. I came home and I said, Pastor Boffman, I feel like God's called me to preach. What should I do? He said, you need to go to Springfield, Missouri and go to the Bible college there. And I said, okay, great. I'll go. I've never been to Missouri in my life, but I'm willing to go. So I came up to the church the day before I was going to leave from Missouri, I came up to get a few things of mine that I left at the church and just kind of put some things away that I'm dealing with at the church and the youth ministry and stuff. And the pastor happens to come through. And he goes, hey, Milborn. He always called me by last name. He says, Milborn, so you're going to Springfield tomorrow? And I said, I said, yes, sir. I don't know. I probably didn't say yes, sir. I wasn't in Texas by then. I said, yes, I leave tomorrow. And he said, all right, well, good luck. And he walks out. I'm like, Good luck. I, I've been in church here for nine years and I've been serving faithfully here for nine years and what I get is good luck. But that's kind of how shy and awkward he was. And I'm like, okay, I'll take a good luck. But then it's like he walked out, went through the nursery and stopped and got the nerve and came back in the kitchen where I was. He said, Milborn, when you get out there to Springfield, you don't care what anybody thinks about you. And then he walked back out. And I tell you what, that piece of advice was exactly what I needed when I went there because I, I was going to be there to, to, to learn, not just to be conformed to a cutty cooker like many other pastors, but to question things. Is this what the Bible really teaches? And not be concerned with what others thought about me. And let me tell you something. That's the best lesson you can teach your kids. Impress God, not others. So Mark's favorite word again, immediately, 41 times in the Gospel of Mark, he sent the king an executioner. So he feels bad about killing John the Baptist, but not that bad. He didn't try to stall and say, can we reason with this? Can I give you something else? After all, I did offer you half of my kingdom, and you want a head on a platter. And so 
but he, he went forward with the execution. And he brought his head on a platter and he gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. Just, can you imagine being there? What a, a grotesque scene this is. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are convicted. Like, I like John the Baptist preaching too. And I'm, I was actually thinking about becoming a Christian, but gosh, this is really gross. People can do some pretty horrifying things, can't they? Put yourself in the situation of our brothers and sisters in Iraq. Or worse yet, Afghanistan. We totally bailed on Afghanistan. And Gillette left Christians and people who we helped them win their freedom, the women right to vote, and all of a sudden we just bail on them. And they're beheading pastors like there's no tomorrow. Imagine being an Afghanistan Christian. And your pastor gets his head cut off. And this is real. This, these aren't just fairy tales in the Bible. This is, this is stuff that's actually has happened 2,000 years ago, and it's happening today. We have brothers and sisters in China, Nigeria, the Sudan, who are being killed and raped just because they love Jesus. And so this, this is real stuff. And it says, when his disciples, think about this, these are the guys who love John the Baptist. Some of Jesus' disciples were followers of John the Baptist first, and John said, hey, now go follow Jesus. He's the real deal. So they loved John the Baptist. They'd spent years with him. They heard about it. And they, what did they say? Oh, man, we need to go into hiding because we're going to cut off our head too. They're like, no, they're bold. They go out and say, hey, we want the body. We're going to take care. We're going to give them a respectful grave. You guys disrespected them. We're going to give them respectful burial. See, they, they had no fear. They were bold. And we need to be bold for Christ like they were. So we have a prophet without honor. Jesus not being disrespected in his own hometown. We have a journey without supplies. Trust me, just go out there and, man, have a great time casting out demons and all these things, and just don't worry about it. People are going to feed you and take care of you. you got a preacher without fear. John the Baptist just saying, speaking truth, calling sin, sin. you got a ruler with no self-control in Herod. And the key word there is without. If we apply that to ourselves, Romans 5, 6 says, for when we were with what? Without strength. Strength to do what? Strength to save ourselves. Strength to, to avoid hell. Strength to become a child of God. We, we didn't have strength to do any of that. And Jesus says, but when you're weak, I'm strong. And Jesus came and he died and showed that strength that we didn't have. When we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you know Jesus this morning? Do you know for sure that you're saved? I would ask for everybody, if you would, just to bow your head and close your eyes and I'd ask for believers everywhere to pray that God would just penetrate hearts with the light in the dark places. But if you don't know for sure you're a born-again Christian, you've been saved, you can do that today. There's no reason not to. It's really choosing God's will over yours. Jesus died because you sinned. Jesus died because I sinned. You and I are ungodly until we know Christ. He makes us godly. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to try to be more and more religious, try to become a better churchgoer. We truly let Jesus save us from ourselves and from our sin. You can trust Jesus right here today where you're seated or if you're watching online. You can just pray a prayer, something like this. And I'm always careful to say the prayer doesn't save you. It's your faith in Christ. And you can pray, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I ask that you would save me from my sin. I give my life to you because you gave your life for me. I'm going to make you the Lord of my life and the Savior of my soul. And I thank you for forgiving me for all you've done on the cross. And I ask this in your name. Amen.
Now, if you made that decision, man, I would love to hear from you. I would love to talk to you about your new life in Christ. And if you have any questions about it, maybe you're like, I'm not sure. I want to know more about Jesus. Let's talk. Let's have coffee. Let's meet. Let's talk. So right now we're going to do question and answer time. Amanda, would you like to come help me with that? And I, I did see where several came through. If we don't ask yours, um, uh, feel free to raise your hand because it means you, it, the text didn't come through. So let's see. I think this is the first one right here. Thanks for helping me with that. Great works. Start again. Do you think that when Jesus could not do great works actually was permission, but permission from the Father or the Holy Spirit? That perhaps the Holy Spirit did not give permission because it would be a waste of effort due to their unbelief. That's a great. That's a great way. I've never heard thought of that before. That's a great question. That's got that's Patrick, right? Is that Patrick asking? Yes. Right? Good job, I Patrick. I don't say who it's from. So that. yes. <laughs> well, we know what it's not. It's not because the people didn't give permission, which is what. The Word of Faith movement teaches you got to give Jesus permission to work in your life. That's not true. Jesus can do what he wants. He's sovereign. So because Jesus always did the will of the Father, the Father probably did say, Jesus, don't. And he's like, okay, I won't. That's great. I love that. Good job. You're preaching next Sunday, bud. Okay. Um, that's, was there a part two to that? I think that was, yeah. All right, go to the next question. That's good. Sure. I'm just making sure. No, there is not. Okay. Okay. Do you think that individuals who could choose to be called binary are demon-possessed since they ask to be addressed as they and not he or she? How can we help them? Two questions. <laughs> okay. Um, I, 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 here, I'll tell you why I laughed. I'm not laughing at the question. It's a great question. I'm laughing because you ever see those name tags? And one of them, and I saw a meme that said, my name is Legion. I identify as they. That's what I'm thinking of, oh. but that I wouldn't. Re, I, that one's kind of insensitive. But okay, so it, the first answer is no. I don't think people who are sexually confused are demon possessed. I think they could be, but I don't think. I think alcoholism could be demon possession or not. I think drug addiction could be demon possession or not. Jesus made a distinction between the sick and the demon possessed, as if they could be two different things. Okay, um, but it's called gender dysphoria. Okay, and I do believe it is a mental illness. Okay, it's not politically correct to say, but let me just give you this. What if a girl has anorexia and bulimia? She only weighs 72 pounds soaking wet, but when she looks in the mirror, she sees a fat girl, so she keeps starving herself. She identifies as fat, so she keeps hurting herself and losing weight, and she's about to die. Do we tell you, oh, it's okay if you identify as fat? Or do we help her get past her false image of herself and identify who she really is? which is a girl that's too skinny who needs to put on some weight. Which, what would we do? What's the loving thing to do? To help them just embrace their identification or to help them see that what they identify is, is unhealthy? So if, if a little boy identifies as a girl, we need to say, no, God made you a boy. Let's help you. Let's counsel you through this and work through this. Um, I'm so thrilled that England passed the law. England has more common sense than we do. They said you can't do any type of transitioning until you're 18. You can't even pick your bedtime at age nine. How can you pick your gender? For real, okay? And I'm not, I'm not mad at the kids. I'm mad at the stupid adults and parents who are trying to be politically correct. They're messing up their kids' lives because the stuff that they're doing with this transitioning is permanent. It is messes up their hormones for the rest of their life. They have to take pills and artificial substances for the rest of their life, what they think is a natural transition. It's not natural at all. 
Okay, God didn't mess up. We're, we're, we're the ones that are flawed. And again, I don't mean to be insensitive. Um, I, don't, I would never repeat those memes. When I saw that, I thought, oh, that's funny, but I'm not going to repeat that. Um, and so I probably shouldn't even repeat it this morning. But I would say if someone, the answer to the question, if someone identifies that way, don't blame it on demons. We live in a massively confused world. It could be demonic, but then again, so could your lying. Okay? It just, you can, we can get ourselves in a whole lot of trouble without the devil. All right? Amen? Okay. How do we balance the call to sacrificial giving with the responsibility to provide for our immediate family? Great, great question. Okay, so, and they, they chose the right word there, sacrifice, okay? So, Paul said, if you will not, Paul said to Timothy, if a man will not care for those of his own household, he's worse than infidel, okay? You're, you may say you're a Christian, but you're acting like a total unbeliever if you will not take care of your family. So, charity begins where? At home. Now, that does not mean the latest Xbox for everything. You need to provide for your kids' needs. You need to make life comfortable for them and, make, and, and provide for all their needs. But when you sacrifice, which the Bible calls us to sacrifice, says even our own lives are a sacrifice. We're supposed to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Sacrifices always hurt. It means you're not going to have Starbucks six times a week, okay? You may have to cut down the one so you can sacrifice. You know, I'm being facetious here. It may mean that you don't get the new car, but you sacrifice so you can give more to the missionaries in Spain and Ghana. You, you sacrifice all kinds of things. And your kids will say, you can say to your kids, you know, yeah, okay, maybe we don't go to Disney World every other year. But look what we're doing for people in the community. And we're, we're, we're helping our neighbors. Remember the widow down the street? We're going to go help her today. We're not going to go to the park. We're going to go mow her lawn. So sacrifice makes us uncomfortable. But that is one of the best lessons you can teach your kids. Doesn't mean that you say, Johnny, you're not eating this week because we're feeding the family down the street. Okay, but let me tell you something. We live in America. <laughs> Your kids are more than cared for. We've got plenty of room to sacrifice and to give. Um, what comes first, salvation or repentance? Wow. Okay. Uh, salvation is a result of repentance. Okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You believe, everlasting life comes. Um, Calvinists teach that, no, God illuminates your heart, and then you believe. But that's backwards. Everywhere in the Bible it says, John 5, 24, he that, he that heareth my word and believes on him that sent me shall not uh, perish, but enter into light. It says that they believe first, and then they receive the word. It says, he that heareth my word and believes. So you've got to hear the word of God, which is the light, and that responds in repent. And repentance is not step one and then believe. It's two sides of the same coin. If I'm going this way and I'm going my way, and God says about face, I cannot turn my back on myself and turn to God without doing one motion. It's all, it's one. So you repent, and that results in salvation. So re to repent of what I'm doing and believe on Jesus is the same thing. And I'm just going to double check. because So this is the last question. Can you last question. That's your cue, Ben. Last question. Okay. Oh, are we doing a walk away or are we doing a prayer? Oh, we're doing a prayer. Okay, good. Oh, okay. My, my bad. Okay. Thank you for remembering, no, Amanda. Okay. Can you go into Jesus doing miracles as a man depending on the Holy Spirit a bit more? Jesus being 100% man and 100% God, is this distinction necessary? I would think Jesus gave the disciples authority to perform miracles as God, not as man depending on the Holy Spirit. It's a great question, and I can't say I know exactly where to draw the line. I do know this, though, that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he could have easily said, Satan, get out of here. 
but he chose to quote scripture, to act like a human being who his only defense against Satan was to draw the sword of the spirit and do battle. He could have not quoted a thing because he's God, right? But he chose to function as Jesus, the, the human being. So I, don't, I won't say that Jesus did everything he did as a human being totally dependent on God. But then again, maybe I would because Jesus says, I, I do nothing without my father. So I don't, but there's no contradiction there because, again, this is the incarnation. Prior to that, he's the one that spoke the world into existence. But when he chose to be incarnated and become one of us, he, it, it, he chose to do everything from a human perspective, okay? Uh, there are glimpses, though, and again, it's confusing, where it seems like his omniscience kicks in, where he knows people's thoughts. Or is that a spirit-filled man using what we were created to do? You know, I don't, I really believe in it. Don't quote me on this, okay? I mean, will you, I mean, don't take this as gospel or doctrine. I believe Adam could talk to the animals. I think he could understand their thoughts. I think Balaam's ass, his donkey, that was just a glimpse of going back to the garden. And I, I don't, that's just my theory. What's that? A donkey actually talked. Yes. So I think that's to say, I think though that, that because all creation is under the curse and all creation groans, okay, the reason the animal in the forest is scared of you because he knows you're not right with his creator. So I, I think that there's a glimpse there. But anyway, so how much of what Jesus did was, was what, all, what Adam could do, like an intuition? I don't know, but one thing is one thing is abundantly clear. Jesus is 100% God. Whatever he did as a human is what he chose to do. Does that make sense? Okay. Amen. Truth. This guy, you need his enthusiasm. We need this, okay? He, he's going to get contagious with you. You guys are going to all be doing this in a while. Not all right. a lot. Here's another question. Okay, we'll take it over. Can repentance be achieved by accountability from brothers and sisters? Accountability is a tool, but you can be accountable all day long, but if you don't want to change in your heart, you won't. You'll just tell other people, yeah, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm good. And nobody really knows you but you, you know, on a human level. So it's a tool for repentance. But you could be, you could be the prodigal son that stayed home. Remember, there's two prodigal sons. One, one went out and, and splurged. The other stayed home and was just as rebellious as the other guy. Mm -hmm. He just did it in a religious way. So. Is, there are three questions in this one text. Okay. okay. Also, is boldness something gifted by God? Should we be asking for boldness every day? I, I would say yes. Paul, I think it's three times. I'm not 100% sure. At least twice. I think three times he told the churches, pray that I would be given boldness. So he's saying, I don't have it in myself. I need God to give it to me. So yes, it's a gift. And yeah, I think you should pray for it every day because every day we probably have opportunities to to start a com gospel conversation. All right, cool. Very good. Hey, um, Rob, would you come to the stage? I haven't asked you to advance, but you used to teach junior high, so you used to be in surprises, right? I'm going to ask you just to dismiss us in prayer. So th this is Rob Moore. He taught junior high for how many years? 22 years. Retired this past year. Use this mic here. This is his lovely wife, Chenda, who's also in the education field. You can call her Dr. Chenda. So anyway, ask God to bless our week, okay? Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to be under the sound of your word. We're thankful that we have a standard that we can live by in a world that's sinful, in a world that's turning away from you even more than it already has. Father, I pray that you would help us to be diligent this week, reading our Bibles, praying, 
musing upon the things of, of eternity. Father, we just uh, ask your blessing and thank you for the time we got to spend around you and, and each other. We thank you now in his name. Amen.